0: Let's pray together. Father, you've been so gracious to us. You have wrought in our hearts a work such that we have arisen and we've come to Jesus. And we have found life and peace. And we are new creations because of that. Father, I pray that you would help us to live in light of the new creation work that you've begun within us. Father, forgive us because we know that we have sometimes regarded one another according to the flesh. Just like we once regarded Jesus according to the flesh. We totally were not thinking about him in the right way. rejected him but now we no longer regard him that way. And Lord, I pray you would spare us from doing that to each other. I pray you'd spare us from being unrighteous stewards with our love. So help us, Lord, as we come to your word. Open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe some of you saw a video that went viral this week. It was on social media and it was body cam footage from a police officer who was in a routine traffic stop. Thankfully, there's, nobody was hurt in this. There was no, no violence in it, but there was a, a confrontation. And um, there was this woman who is, her, her face was um, blotted out, so you couldn't really see her face. But apparently, she was a member of a, a, a racial minority. Couldn't really tell what, though. But she was driving while apparently, allegedly, texting with her cell phone. And in the state that they were in, that was illegal, And so the officer pulled her over to give her a citation. And as the officer comes over to approach her car, she has her phone in her hand, and she's pointing it at the the officer to record her whole encounter with the officer. And she demands to know why he's harassing her as he's walking up. She says, I wasn't speeding. And he indicates that the problem is her phone. And she says, well, I have a right to be recording you with my phone because you're a murderer. And she says, um, so I'm going to do this. And he clarifies, well, you can't be on your cell phone while you're, you're driving. And she remains belligerent. She doubles down. She says, I'm recording you because you scared me. And over and over, she just accuses him, accuses him. He asks her for her driver's license, and she says that she's, she left it at home. She says, so you're going to give me a cell phone ticket? Can you call your supervisor, please? And so he says, I already called my supervisor. He's on his way. She says, good, because you're a murderer. He says, I'm sorry you feel that way. And she says, well, it's not just a feeling because you're a murderer. It was over and over. It was relentless. She's driving a Mercedes Benz car, really nice car. And so the officer asks her if it's her car. And she says, yes, it is. Are you asking because you're jealous? The supervisor shows up. We need your signature. He's only citing you for driving while using your cell phone. She fires back. You mean for him being a Mexican racist? Apparently, the officer that was issuing the citation was a minority himself, Hispanic. And um, so she calls him a Mexican racist. And then I'm not even going to repeat the rest of it. It just gets so ugly and nasty. She just goes into that with, with him. But it's remarkable throughout this whole encounter. The officer is calm. She takes all of her accusations and her subsequent racist remarks to him. And he doesn't respond in kind. He's, he's calm this whole time. Nothing violent happens. The woman drives away. And then the whole hateful thing is over within just you know a few minutes. I don't know. I don't know people's hearts. Maybe the woman was actually terrified. I'm a little bit skeptical of that because she didn't act like a scared person. But she acted like somebody who resented being given a ticket. That's what she acted like. But um, she was willing to use this sort of false narrative um, about police officers as a pretext to try to, it looked like she was trying to provoke him to do something so she could get it on on video. She had this open contempt for authority and she apparently had bought into a narrative about police officers. And so there was nothing he could say or do that was right as, as far as she was concerned. She never met the guy, but as far as she was concerned, he was a murderer and there to do something illicit. She simply regarded him As a racist and a murderer, just for wearing the uniform. How many people today have allowed their minds to be poisoned by that kind of prejudice? How many people have begun to make prejudicial judgments about people, not based on what they have done, but based upon some kind of identity politics narrative? a narrative that judges good and evil not on the basis of conduct or character but upon what group you belong to a narrative that pays attention to superficial external realities while ignoring the unique dignity and personhood of individuals because they and you do this because people do this because you know you belong to some disfavored group this kind of thinking has become rife in our day. It's not just a right-wing thing, it's not just a left-wing thing. It's a both-wings thing. And it's not so different from the kind of contempt that Paul was facing from opponents who were in Corinth. If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in verses 16 to 21. You'll remember that these early chapters of 2 Corinthians have revealed that Paul has some opponents in Corinth. At different times and in different ways, these opponents have called into question Paul's authority as an apostle. We can tell that they're looking at Paul's unimpressive, his beleaguered and persecuted appearance, and they are using that superficial measure to claim that Paul himself is not worth listening to to question his authority. And they questioned that there could be anything of spiritual power or worth in a person as weak and unimpressive as Paul apparently was. And in fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, we found out that some people were asking for letters of recommendation. And Paul says, I don't need a letter. You're my, my letter. And and so Paul explains to them through chapter 3 and chapter 4 that they can't judge by appearances because he's carrying the gospel treasure in an earthen vessel. Do you remember that? He's carrying the gospel treasure in an earthen vessel in chapter 4 and verse 7. Even though his outer man is decaying, so what he looks like on the outside, that's truly not impressive, okay? Um, His outer man is decaying. His inner man is being renewed day by day, he says in chapter 4 in verse 16. So you can't judge his authority as an apostle based on the weakness of his external appearance alone. The most important thing about him is not what can be seen with the eyes, but whats what can be seen with the eyes, this treasure that's being enclosed in this earthen vessel. And so jumping ahead to chapter 5 in verse 12, that's why he says that he needs to help the believers in Corinth, to have an answer for those opponents who were there among them who take pride in appearance, but they don't take pride in heart. They take pride in what people look like on the outside, but not on the realities of the inside. They take pride in these clay vessels, but not in the treasure that's within. And so in our passage today, Paul is insisting that that kind of prejudice is not the way that we do things as followers of Christ. That's just not the way that we do things. And he says those that who have been given the ministry of reconciliation have a whole different way of reckoning things. A way that gives attention to unseen, eternal realities and not one that gets tripped up over external, temporal realities. And so Paul's going to come at this Um, speaking about the ministry of reconciliation from from a few different angles. He's going to talk about Paul's regard for others in verses 16 and 17. He's going to talk about Paul's ministry to others in verses 18 and 19. And then he's going to talk about Paul's exhortation to others in verses 20 and 21. So the first thing we're going to see here is Paul's regard for others. Everybody look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now, those four initial words are really important. From now on, therefore. Those words are directing our attention to the previous passage where Paul has said that there are opponents who boast in outward appearance and who do not look at the heart. Chapter 5 and verse 12. Those opponents, as I said, ignore the fact that Paul is weak towards them. Why, in other words, if he looks unimpressive on the outside, he's weak, he's beleaguered, he's persecuted. Why is that? It's for their sake. <laughs> if he's weak, it's for them. It's, it's all for their sake. And they're ignoring the fact that he's weak towards them because of his, his love for them. He may be persecuted and weak on the outside, but it's it's all for their sake so that he can minister the gospel to them. And that very gospel, if you think about the gospel that he's ministering to them, what's the focus of the gospel? It's about a crucified Messiah. Even the subject matter of the gospel itself has a kind of weakness at, at the heart of it. And yet they seem to be despising this external weakness. And yet... That was the powerful gospel that saved them. And so because of those realities, he says, from now on, therefore, because all of that is true, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, keep in mind, again, when Paul says we and us, he's using that figure of speech. He means I and me. He's mainly referring to himself. you got to keep that in mind through the passage. And what he's saying is that because he serves a crucified and risen Messiah, and because God himself has said, don't look at outward appearance, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You remember that from last week? That That was the whole point from last week. Because those realities are true, Paul says, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. Now the NIV renders that last phrase, as we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I think that captures it pretty well. So to regard someone according to the flesh or to regard them from a worldly point of view means to think about them and make judgments about them in accordance with the standards and values that derive from living as if physical life in this world is all that there is. And we'll have to add as if this fallen physical reality is all that there is. So that you would look somebody, look at somebody, and see some external reality about them and just size them up. And then your prejudgment at that point becomes the way that you treat them and, and think about them. So if you look at the color of someone's skin and then, based on that, conclude that they are an inferior person, that would fall into the category of regarding someone according to the flesh. That's looking at some superficial external thing that has nothing to do with eternal realities or what they're worth or who they are. It's none of that. Um, it's, it's, It's just regarding them according to worldly standards, according to the flesh. If you see a person wearing a police uniform and then you conclude based solely on that uniform that they're a violent murderer, then you are regarding someone according to the flesh. And if you look at the Apostle Paul's weak and persecuted body and then conclude that he's not worth listening to, you're regarding someone according to the flesh. Except in Paul's case, the stakes are a lot higher than with the police officer or anyone else. Because Jesus has appointed Paul as an apostle to bear his name, to lost sinners. If you regard Paul according to the flesh and then thereby dismiss Paul, And what he says, then you're dismissing God's revelation. You're setting yourself against God's revelation of himself in the world. So the stakes are really, really high here so that no one ought to be prejudiced against Paul just based on some kind of worldly criterion. Well, then Paul elaborates. He says, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. And then look at that next phrase. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh... We regard him thus no longer. Now, what Paul's saying there, he's he's admitting that he once regarded Christ according to the flesh, which means that he once evaluated Christ on the basis of fallen human criteria. He once did not believe that this crucified Jew, Jesus, could possibly be the mighty son of David that was promised in the Old Testament. He knew about Jesus. He knew about these followers of Jesus. He thought they were wrong. Messiahs don't get crucified. Messiahs come into Jerusalem and put their foot on the neck of the Romans. They don't get crucified by the Romans. And so Paul used to regard Christ according to the flesh. He had the wrong estimation of him based on this external apparent weakness, apparently. And so by external standards... It was a bit of a non-starter to speak of a man being crucified by the Romans as a Messiah, Savior of Israel. It went against everything he would have believed on a human level. But even though he once regarded Christ as not the Christ at all, his view of Jesus changed. Dramatically changed. In fact, Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 through 16, he says this, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I mean, all of us in here had some sort of enmity towards God and towards Christ before our conversion. How many of us can say that we were actively persecuting the church like Paul was? He says, I tried to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Did you catch what he says there? He's talking about what happened to him on the the Damascus Road. He's on his way to persecute Christians, and Jesus intercepts him and reveals himself to Paul. And it uh, it says, when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Everything changed at that moment. He was trying to destroy the church, But now he regards Christ thus no longer. He's trying to build the church. Why? Because seeing Christ on the Damascus Road took Paul from viewing Jesus as a dead Jew to viewing him as the risen and reigning Messiah of Israel. The resurrection changed everything for him. And he saw it with his own eyes. And so Paul is saying, I got Jesus wrong because of viewing people according to the flesh. I was viewing Christ according to the flesh. I was wrong. I was damnably wrong. But the resurrection changed the way I evaluated everything. And so it's for this reason that he now no longer regards any person according to the flesh. Did you catch that? Because the verse says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we used to regard Christ according to the flesh... We don't regard him that way anymore. I don't regard him that way any longer. And now I don't regard anyone according to the flesh anymore. I don't judge anyone on that basis anymore. I was so wrong about Jesus. I'm not going to be wrong like that about people again. So he says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It would be foolish and wrong to be prejudiced against anyone based on the same error that made him prejudiced against Jesus. Why? Because if anyone is in Christ, what's true of Christ is also true of them. You can't judge any Christian based on worldly standards of judgment and then hope to have any semblance of reality in your estimation of them. They are all, Christians are going to look oftentimes unimpressive. Just as Jesus looked unimpressive to Saul, the Pharisee. Why is that? Well, Jesus said if his disciples follow him, what do they have to do? If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. The the same kind of beleaguered weakness that Jesus walked through, he says his disciples, to a certain extent, are going to have to walk through it themselves. If people viewed Jesus as weak, well, guess what? They're going to see his disciples as weak, too, if they're going to look like him. So that means that the very things that made Jesus look unimpressive to Paul are by necessity going to be true of those who follow Jesus as well. If Jesus was persecuted and beleaguered, so will they be. And so you can't regard people according to the flesh and, and think that that's all there is to them. You have to look at the heart. What's true of the heart? That's what verse 19 is about. Excuse me, what verse 17 is about. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And so Paul's new creation language recalls the words of Isaiah the prophet that we just read during our Old Testament reading moments ago. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 16 through 18. It says this, He who swears in the earth shall swear by God, The God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten. And because they are hidden from my sight. Meaning, you know, God um, disciplined his people. There was a judgment that came into Jerusalem that, you know, the the Babylonians came in. It was a a severe judgment. But all these former troubles due to Israel's disobedience and sin, all the judgments, those are going to be forgotten at some point. They're going to be hidden from my sight. For behold... God says, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. This new thing God is doing, old things gone away. You just don't even remember them anymore. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. There is a fallenness, a sadness, a judgment that's going to be forgotten. Because this new thing has come that God is creating, a new heavens and a new earth. And so Isaiah is prophesying that the time is coming that Israel will forget about the hardships of God's judgment and captivity. God will make a new heavens and a new earth that will be so full of glory and goodness that all the past troubles will no longer come to mind. When God creates anew, it will be a time of great rejoicing. And what's remarkable remarkable about this prophecy is that it's all oriented towards the future. And yet when Paul speaks in these terms about new creation, he says that the new creation is not only future, but is a present reality in the life of every believer. He's saying the new creation has entered into the experience of anyone who is in Christ If you know Christ, it is true that there's an inheritance that's laid up for you in the future. That's a fact, and it won't spoil or fade away. It's also true that you already have the Holy Spirit working within you and remaking your heart and mind into the image of Christ right now. You no longer scoff at the things of God. Like you used to. You're no longer indifferent to the things of God like you used to be. Why is that? Because all things have passed away and instead you rejoice in the grace of God in your life. Why? Because new things have come. The new creation realities of the future have broken into the presence in the Holy Spirit's work in, inside of you. Your outer man may be decaying and passing away, but your inner man is being renewed day by day. The inward reality is is that the Holy Spirit is taking what was spiritually dead and making it it alive. Paul says this is true of every Christian. You can't just look at their external characteristics and tell what they really are. Judgments based on external characteristics, including judgments about Paul as an apostle, are just going to be wrong, they're worthless. You have to train yourself to see what's unseen and in the heart. What Paul says here is really, it's not unlike what Jesus himself taught us in the parable of the mustard seed. You remember that in Matthew chapter 13 in verse 31 and 32? It says this, it says, He presented to them another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now there are a lot of, there's a lot of depth to this parable, but when we think about what it means, kind of at a basic level, we have to consider that in Jesus's day, the mustard seed is the smallest object imaginable. And so in our terms, if we want to describe something that's infinitesimal like this, we would have to be thinking on the molecular or the atomic level, okay? It's, it's the smallest thing imaginable. And Jesus says that that's what's, what Christ's kingdom is like. That's what his reign is like. It starts off so small that almost no one can see it. But eventually, it grows to something so enormous and glorious that you can't not see it. When it's full grown, it dwarfs everything else in the garden. And it's not a surprise that that Jesus would would speak this way. If you were judging Jesus' earthly ministry according to worldly standards, in Paul's terminology, you would not have been very impressed. This is a guy who gathers to himself, you know, 12 men, just 12 guys out of all of Israel. One of those guys is a rat and a traitor. And so really the, the 11... When the the Romans, when Jesus is arrested, all the 11 forsake him. When the Romans nailed Jesus to the cross, Jesus is all alone. That does not look very significant at all. It's not impressive. And if the kingdom of God was exerting itself in the cross, you won't be surprised that many people, many of the people watching Jesus bleed to death, couldn't see it. They weren't looking at this dying Jew on a cross and thinking, look at all the power. Look how impressive. Very few people saw it that way. And yet the power of God was at work in that ignominious moment. And that's Jesus' point in the parable. That's the nature of the kingdom. What starts out small and unimpressive ends up big. So big that it dwarfs everything around it. Paul is saying that the new creation, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. That new creation is the same way. It works that way in us. One day the glory of God is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. In the meantime, that new creation is already breaking into people's hearts through the gospel. But it's small and inconspicuous in many ways. But it is still nevertheless true. So the most important thing about you and me is not what we can see with our eyes, but what God can see with his. That what's in your heart, the new creation has come and all the old things have passed away. What that means is that no matter what external characteristics you have, your external characteristics aren't the most important thing. The most important thing about you is that you're a new creation through the spirit of God working inside of you. You're a child of God. And that work may go unnoticed by the world, but it does not go unnoticed by God. For that reason, Paul doesn't regard anyone according to the flesh. His estimation of people is bound up with whether or whether they are in the flesh or in the spirit. That's what he thinks in terms of. Are you a person who's in the flesh or in the spirit? Those who are in the flesh are going to perish, but those who are in the spirit are going to live forever. That's the most important thing about you, is which category do you fall in? Do you know Christ or not? Are you in the flesh or are you in the spirit? Those who are in the spirit are going to live forever no matter what their external characteristics are. If that's how Paul regards people and if that's how God regards people, why would you and I be any different? Why would we have a different estimation of what people are and what God is doing than what Paul and Jesus teach us? Why would we ever dismiss someone because of their external presentation? Maybe it seemed weak or undesirable in some worldly sense. We must never do that. And Paul is saying that his readers have to never do that to him. And yet some people were. So Paul talks about his regard for others Verses 16 and 17, he doesn't regard anyone according to the flesh. Neither should we. But then in verses 18 and 19, he talks about Paul's, his ministry to others. Everybody look at verse 18. He says in verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So in verse 18, Paul's explaining where the miracle of the new creation comes from. How does a person go from being spiritually dead to being alive to the things of God? How does one go from being indifferent or hostile to God to being open and welcoming to God? Well, Paul says it's really simple. All this is from God. That's where it comes from. God is the one who does this. It's a marvelous and an undeserved gift of God's grace. You and I deserve to be damned. That's what we deserved, but God designed differently. God aimed to bring you to himself. All this is from God. Remember 1 Corinthians 1.30? It's by his doing that you're in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul says about his own participation in what God has, has done for him. Paul says that God reconciled me to himself through Christ and gave me the ministry of reconciliation meaning that God took two estranged parties. When we talk about reconciliation, the the assumption is that there's two parties who are estranged from one another and that they've been brought back together again. That's what reconciliation is. It's the reestablishment of an interrupted or a broken relationship. How did that relationship between God and man get so contentious? You know, because Paul... Had that contention with God? Every single person has that contention with God. What, what happened? Well, it wasn't because of anything that God did, but because of what we did. It was Adam and Eve who sinned against God, not God against them. God cast them out of the garden and away from the tree of life. And all of us who are sinners share in their fate of being alienated from our Creator and being without hope and without God in the world. It was, it was our fault. It wasn't His fault. But God... Changes that alienation. Through Christ's work on the cross, he has changed us from being enemies to friends. From adversaries to sons and daughters of the living God. That's what he did for Paul. God reconciled Paul to himself and then gave Paul a special calling as an apostle. To be a minister of reconciliation. His own reconciliation to God, in fact, is what grounds his becoming an ambassador from God to others in order to see them reconciled to God. And so verse 19, he says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, or to me, the message of reconciliation. Now notice how easily Paul moves from his own reconciliation, verse 18, His own reconciliation to how God is reconciling the world to himself in verse 19. He's not talking about the whole world without exception here. Right? Because we know from elsewhere that some people are going to reject God's work of reconciliation. They're going to be under judgment. So he's not talking about the whole world without exception, but the whole world without distinction. So all different kinds of people from all different kinds of ethnic groups, races, tribes, people, they're all going to be gathered at the throne at the end. So this whole world without distinction, anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ alone to save them will be reconciled to God. The world's reconciliation is based on two works here, Paul says. Notice it says that God does not count sin against those who are their children. So he's reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You see that? So no matter what you have done, you can be forgiven and free. God will not even hold your sins against you anymore. He will accept Jesus' sacrifice of his own life on your behalf. That's his work of reconciliation. But, so that's the primary thing, is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But what if Jesus accomplished all that on the cross and nobody ever knew about it? A part of his reconciling work is Paul's apostleship. And so he says in the second part of the verse... He says he entrusted, he's reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them. He's entrusting to me the message of reconciliation. He's entrusted to Paul and the other apostles this word, this message of what God is doing to bring the two parties back together. A part of reconciling the world to himself is providing a way for the message to get to God's people. And God chose to deposit the message of salvation with apostles. They're unique in the church. Paul is unique in the church. They are authoritative recipients of God's revelation. They are God's authoritative messengers of the gospel, which means that if you want to be saved from your sins and you don't wish to be bothered with the apostolic message, you can't be saved. You try to get saved, but you do an end run around this message that's been deposited with Paul and the other apostles, you're not saved. You may want to be saved. You may not want to be judged, but you're not going to avoid it. You have to accept their message. You don't get to invent your own or some other path to the Lord. It's the message of the cross that they preached that saves us. So you see that it's not only what Jesus does, but it's that God sent heralds with a message that doesn't change. A few years ago at Christmas, we bought Denny. And, uh, a Lego X-Wing fighter. We allegedly bought it for Denny because I wanted to do it as much as he did, maybe more. Um, we brought it home, and we couldn't wait to, to build the picture that we saw on the box. We wanted that ship that was on the box. We wanted the finished product, and we went right to work on it. But, you know, if you build one of these things, it's different than other things you might buy at Christmas. And you can ask my family. Um, when I get new things, I, some, a lot of times will bypass the directions because I already know how it works. <laughs> and I, just, I don't go through the directions. I just know how it's supposed to work, and so I just get it there through my own ingenuity. You can't do that with an X-Wing fighter Lego set. You can't just look at the box and then go, you know, presto, come up with that. You have to follow these directions painstakingly, and it takes hours and hours and hours, step by step, word by word, all of the instructions, or you'll never get the finished product. The complexity is just too much. It's a little bit like that with the gospel that saves us. You may want to be saved from God's judgment, but if you try to find salvation apart from the written revelation that Jesus deposited with his apostles, and which are recorded for us in the New Testament, you'll never be reconciled to God. This, this message is not something that's going to occur to you naturally. It's only from the apostles that we know that Jesus Christ was crucified and raised for sinners. You can find from the historians reports about things, but th- this is the, the apostles are the only ones that are telling us the truth about this. And they're the only ones that are telling us what it all means. That reconciliation with God can only happen through Christ. And so that means that all of us have to come to terms with at least two things. Every single person in this room is a sinner by nature and by choice. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are by nature children of wrath. Which means before you ever chose to sin, you had a sin nature because you are a child of Adam. And then, of course, you make choices in keeping with your nature. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And your sin is an offense against the holy and righteous God, and there is a breach between you and God. Because of that. God therefore punishes sin with death. Romans 6:23. For the wages of sin is death. That's what you earn. You earn judgment, the judgment of death. And your sin has made a breach between you and Almighty God. And that means the greatest need that you or anyone has is to be reconciled to the God That you have offended. But that reconciliation can only come through Christ. And unless you receive Christ. By repenting of your sin. And trusting in his work on the cross for you. You will remain unreconciled. And under God's condemnation. But if you repent and believe. The Bible says that you will be reconciled once and for all to God. That's the good news of the gospel. The second thing that you have to come to terms with is that the only way for you to get connected with the saving message of that gospel is to acknowledge and submit to the apostolic message that's been handed down to us from the Apostle Paul and all of the other apostles. If you can't be reconciled to the apostolic message, you can't be reconciled to God. You say, this is kind of common sense. It's less and less common sense today. I'm looking at churches across this land who are ignoring the Bible as if they get to make this up as they go along. And as if the apostolic instructions about how we're saved, about how we order our lives together, bleh. You know what John says? The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, he who knows God listens to us. This is how you know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The spirit of error is the spirit of antichrist. You listen to the apostles. We don't make this up ourselves. There is no other message of salvation except theirs. So Paul talks about his regard for others. We don't regard others according to the flesh. Paul talks about his ministry to others. His ministry is a ministry of reconciliation through the apostolic message that's been given to him. And then finally, he talks about his exhortation to others. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. That therefore throws us back to the last phrase in verse 19, where Paul says that God has committed to him the message of reconciliation. God has given direct, special gospel revelation to Paul and the other apostles. Because of that, therefore, Paul says that he's an ambassador for Christ. Which means that he speaks for God. What's one of the first things that any U.S. president does whenever he gets elected and he assumes office? He begins appointing ambassadors to represent the United States to foreign governments around the world. And who does the president select? Does he select people from the last administration from a different party? Who has a different foreign policy? No, he does not. He selects people who are committed to him and his vision and who will speak what he says to those foreign nations. He he selects someone who will represent the president's own foreign policy. He doesn't merely represent the president when negotiating with foreign governments. He speaks for the president and really in in place of the president. He has the authority of the United States government behind him because of his position as an ambassador for the president, that's precisely the language that Paul is using of himself in relation to Christ. Except the connection between Paul the ambassador and God, the one who sent him, is even more—it's it's, it's tighter. Because Paul says it's as though God were making an appeal through me. That's the same thing as as saying that when I speak, God speaks. It's an extraordinary thing to say because it suggests that the Apostle Paul is not speaking or writing his own words, but God's words. Like 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul says, We constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. The word of God. People say that Paul and the Apostles didn't know they were speaking the word of God. Give me a break. What this means is that if you're disagreeing with Paul, you're disagreeing with God. It also means that if you're disagreeing with it also means that if you're disagreeing with the Bible, you're disagreeing with God. God is saying that you have a need to be reconciled to him because of your sin. And so Paul says to you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. On what basis can a person be reconciled to God? We've already seen it's on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. He's already said that. But what exactly did The cross achieve. What happened there? Well, that's what verse 21 is about. Final verse. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean that God made the sinless one, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf? Does it mean that Jesus became a sinner? Heaven forbid. No, it does not mean that Jesus became a sinner himself. Jesus has been and always will be sinless. Then what does it mean that God made him to be sin? To say that he was made to be sin means that he was made to bear the consequences of our sin. And the consequences of our sin is death. In fact, Galatians 3.13 says it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? And the day that you eat of this, you will die, right? So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, which is death. Having become a curse for us. How did he become a curse for us? Because he died. That was the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. God's curse on sin is death. And when Jesus died, he was bearing God's curse of sin in our place. This is what Peter means when he says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He doesn't become a sinner. He is reckoned as a sinner. He's treated as a sinner. And then being treated as a sinner means bearing the penalty for sin. Why does he do this? Look at the verse. Verse 21. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. No doubt, again, the we refers to Paul. Nevertheless, what Jesus was for Paul is true of what Jesus is for every Christian. Jesus bore our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. When we become Christians, do we become perfectly, perfectly righteous? No, we don't. Um, you still do sin, sinful things when you become a Christian. So that's not what he means when he says we become the righteousness of God. It's not that God makes us righteous, but that he reckons us as righteous. He regards and treats us as righteous, even though we're not actually righteous. This is what it means for God to justify the ungodly. Not that they've actually become righteous, but that they are reckoned as having God's righteousness as their own. It's a forensic righteousness, not an intrinsic righteousness. It's a declared righteousness Not an infused righteousness. So this is what they call the great exchange that happens at the cross. God reckons Jesus as sinful, even though he isn't. And he gives him the penalty due to our sin, death. Why? So that he can reckon us as righteous, even though we aren't righteous. And he offers us the reward due to Jesus' righteousness, eternal life. That's the exchange. That's what's happening at the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. New life in Christ is the reward due to righteousness. And you and I don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Only he deserves it. And the only way that we get the reward of of what he's done is if God reckons us as righteous. But guess how you get reckoned as righteous? Not by anything you do. It's only by repenting from your sin and believing in Christ. It's a free gift. You can't do anything for it. You just have to receive it by faith. So the last thing I want to say to you here. The most important part of this message is for you to hear what Paul says. That Paul is exhorting as God himself be reconciled to God. If there is anyone in this room who is unreconciled to God, there is nothing more important for you to do today than to be reconciled to God. You are a sinner. You are not going to cross the gulf between you and God. If you try to do it yourself, if you try to go around the apostles' message and try to get yourself reconciled to God some other way, you will fail. And you won't make it. Which means damnation. It's the worst thing. Your greatest need is to be reconciled to God. Let me raise the stakes just a little bit more. There's coming a day when God is going to dispose of all things. There are going to be some people at his right hand and some people on his left hand. Those on his right hand are going to go into blessedness. Those on his left hand are going to go into what Jesus says, Matthew 25, eternal fire. Fire that will not be quenched and where the worm will not die. It will be misery forever, suffering under the holy wrath of God. It will be unending. You can't think of anything more grievous to happen to a person than to fail to repent and be reconciled to God and go to that end. There may be, it's Mother's Day today, lots of Christian mothers in here praying for children to be saved, to be reconciled to God. Lots of mothers shed lots of tears for children to be reconciled to God. Small children to adult children. And children at every age resisting being reconciled to God. One day, what we read at the very beginning of the service from Revelation, a new heavens and a new earth, all things are going to be made new. You know what God does at the very end of the age? He makes everything new. He says he wipes away every tear. All the tears that are shed for you and for your salvation, including your own mother, and father and grandparent and every person who loves you, they won't weep for you anymore. No one will weep for, for you in that day. You will be alone and desolate. There is nothing more important for you than to be reconciled to God. You need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. All you have to do is receive it by faith. Don't wait. Father, I pray that you would convict the hearts of your people. Number one, those who are sinners and who don't know you, to be saved, to turn from the vanity. Of their sin and to be reconciled I pray that you would awaken in dead hearts life the ability to see Jesus for who he is so that they would no longer regard him according to the flesh but they would see him as he is the very righteousness of God for us God do that work in the hearts of people that are here and that may be listening somewhere else. I pray for all of us who know you, that you would make us, like Paul, committed to be ambassadors, to speak your word to sinners, and to plead with them to be reconciled to God. I pray you'd put that fire in our bellies, that, they would care, that we would carry out this ministry, and that you would give, let us see fruit from it. Let us see more people called in because of what you're doing through us. And we ask you to do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.